International station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Good morning, it's 8.03 in Hong Kong. Welcome to a new week, Monday the 11th of July. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk on Radio 3. The US economy added more jobs than expected in June. 372,000 jobs were created last month, far more than economists' median forecast of 268,000 new positions, and just shy of the downwardly revised 384,000 created in May. The unemployment rate stayed close to a record low at 3.6% in June for the fourth month in a row. China's annual inflation rate climbed to 2.5% in June from 2.1% in May and above economists' forecasts of 2.4%. That was the highest reading since July 2020. Food prices rose by 2.9% from 2.3% in May. That's the most in 21 months. And China's producer price inflation eased to a 15-month low of 6.1% year-on-year from 6.4% in the prior month. And that's the 18th straight month of slowing producer prices. Financial Secretary Paul Chan said Saturday that China's economy is expected to rebound quickly following the COVID-induced slowdown. He said in a complex and cloudy global economic environment, the situation in the mainland is relatively good. He added that China's economy can rebound and maintain stable growth for the rest of the year through various economic support measures. But he said for Hong Kong, the impact of global economic woes are inevitable, but medium-term prospects remain bright. And the Macau government on Saturday ordered a one-week suspension of all non-essential commercial and industrial businesses, that includes casinos, starting from today to curb the latest COVID outbreak. All residents are required to stay at home except for urgent reasons, such as buying daily necessities. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Lashar at BBVA and Andrew Sullivan from Outset Global. With a view from mainland China is Brock Silvers of Kyan Capital. And please let us know what issues are on your mind. Text 6393 Email money at rthk.hk. Post on our Facebook page, Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Or tweet us at Money Talk Radio 3. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Wall Street ended little changed on Friday after a volatile session in which investors tried to comprehend how a robust jobs report would influence the U.S. Federal Reserve and its plans to aggressively hike interest rates. The Nasdaq Composites Index posted its fifth straight gain. That's its longest winning streak since the beginning of November. And all three benchmarks finished solidly up for the week, which was shortened by the Independence Day holiday. The Nasdaq added 0.1% to 11,635, ending the week 4.6% stronger. The S&P 500 fell 0.1% to 3,899, breaking a four-day winning streak, but it was up 1.9% over the week. The Dow lost 46 points, ending the session at 31,338, but it gained 0.8% in total last week. Twitter shares were down about 6% after hours on Friday, after Elon Musk pulled out of his agreement to buy the social media company for $44 billion US dollars. In Europe, the stock 600 index was up 2.5% last week. 
The UK's FTSE 100 added 0.4% over the five sessions. Hong Kong stocks finished on a positive note on Friday, tracking gains across world markets on easing recession fears. The traders remain on edge over COVID-19 outbreaks on the mainland. The Hang Seng Index rose 82 points, or 0.4%, to 21,726. For the week, the Benchmark Index slipped 0.6%. The Tech Index climbed 0.6%. It was down 1.3% in total last week. And the Shanghai Composite Index fell a third of a percent to 3,356 for a weekly decline of 0.9%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil fell for the third week out of the last four, settling Friday at $107.02 a barrel, down over 4% on the week. Copper fell 2.6% over the week to an 18-month low. Gold was hit by the strong dollar last week, falling almost 4% to $1,744 an ounce. The yield on the 10-year Treasury bond rose 8 basis points to 3.08%. That's around its highest level this month on expectations. The strong jobs figure would cause the Fed to maintain its trajectory of aggressive monetary policy tightening. And in the currency markets, the strong dollar... Uh, The strong jobs report kept the dollar firmly underpinned. The US dollar index was up 1.7% last week to its highest weekly close since October 2002. The euro dropped within less than a cent of hitting parity with the US dollar for the first time in two decades as concerns increased over Europe's economic outlook. It's at $1, 1 three quarter cents this morning. The Japanese yen is at 136.31 versus the dollar. Sterling fell 0.6% last week to $1.20 and a quarter cents and nine Hong Kong dollars and 43 cents. The Chinese yuan is at 6.68 and a half in offshore markets and Bitcoin was up 12% over the week, currently at $20,800. And if we take a look around Asia-Pacific markets this morning as they open a new week in Australia, first of all, uh, the ASX 200 is down a quarter of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan surging ahead after the open up 1.6%. The Cosby in South Korea is down 0.1%. And here in Hong Kong, looks like the Hang Seng is going to open about 25 points lower later on this morning. And a half. Let's welcome our guests over in the Queensway studio. We have Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA. Morning to you, Shark. Good morning, Peter. And on the phone, we have Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. Morning to you, Andrew. Good morning. Um, let's start with the US non farm payrolls report. The US economy added more jobs than expected in June. 372,000 jobs created last month, far more than economists' forecasts of 268,000, and just shy of what was a downwardly revised 384 positions created in May. The unemployment rate stayed close to a record low at 3.6% for the fourth month in a row. Average hourly earnings rose 0.3%, following a 0.4% increase the previous month, and they're now 5.1% higher on a year-over-year basis. And finally, the labor force participation rate, which tracks the share of Americans either employed or actively looking for work, fell to 62.2% as the labor force contracted by 353,000 people. Um, Shark, let me get your thoughts first of all. Does this jobs number, which is obviously quite strong, does it soothe the fears of an imminent recession? 
Uh, I think uh, definitely for the moment, um, now many people worry about this recession, but this uh, strong job market data shows that maybe this kind of this, uh, recession cannot come as early as many people expected. But uh, I like to say this one, this this uh, recession must come maybe in a later stage, mm. not right now. But problem is uh, since uh, the U.S. Fed, they continue to hike interest rate, right? In face of such a strong uh, job market data, they have no reason to stop. Right. They will continue to hike the interest rate. And then at some point in the future, this recession can come. Yeah. When you look into the data, I suppose three of the things the Fed are looking at is a scarcer supply of labor, uh, which is not good. Wage growth, uh, pretty strong, which is also not good. Job openings for unemployed people, still too high. So also not good. And everything the Fed is looking at tends to suggest it's got to carry on um, raising interest rates quite aggressively. Yes, I fully agree on uh, this one. And also, I think that even when this uh, job market, they show some uh, kind of softening or something, moderation. But uh, I think that the Fed will directly focus on this uh, uh, inflation outturns. That means at this moment, e- even uh, they sh- the, the job market, they show some kind of the signals. But uh, Fed cannot stop there because mm. the inflation expectation is still very strong. They need to ensure that their monetary policy conduct can calm down this inflation directly. Yeah. Andrew, what, what are your thoughts on this and, and what does it mean for the Fed in your mind? No, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, it gives them further scope to be able to raise interest rates because you know, it's one of their, the two mandates that they have. Uh, and it seems to be reasonably contained at the moment. So it, it will give them the, the ease with which to continue the rate hikes that they want to put in place. And I think realistically it means that uh, you know, they are going to get sort of um, you know, some, 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 some ammunition in case the, the, you know, the eventual downturn, as we're expecting, does come, that they have scope to be able to drop rates again uh, or having raised them at this stage. Do you think a recession is inevitable in the U.S.? Well, I think it's very hard to see how they will uh, be able to construct a soft landing. I mean, obviously, that would be best for everybody. Um, But with the raising of rates as aggressively as they're doing it at the moment, it's going to have a natural impact uh, on on a lot of people's lives. And, uh, you know, whilst there are a lot of jobs being created, um, you've still got a situation where a lot of people uh, are on low wages uh, and they are going to be hurt by the rising inflation that we're, we're currently seeing. Do you think, Shark, that we could already be in a recession? Because jobs are, are a sort of a lagging economic indicator, aren't they? They're often strong as you enter a downturn. We had the, uh, a negative GDP in the first quarter. Do you think uh, we could have the same again this quarter? Uh, I think it could be because uh, if you look at the concept of this uh, technical recession, that means uh, for two uh, quarters you have this uh, Q on Q uh, negative uh, growth, you will have this uh, recession. Uh, But uh, overall, if you have a strong uh, job market data, so people don't worry that too much. Okay, Mm. this is only a technical one. But what I'm uh, thinking about is uh, at this point, uh, to some degree, this U.S. Fed has been... uh, constrained because uh, 
they worry about this inflation. In fact, they have good reason to do that one. And at this moment, if you want to um, ensure this inflation will not be out of control in future, you need to affect people's expectation. How can you do that? You must show you are very hawkish on this inflation to, to inject the confidence to these uh, investors and other market participants. So that's why I think this kind of the recession is unavoidable because uh, as long as the Fed, they appear to be hawkish, they hike interest rates, then uh, I think that they cannot uh, easily to, to reverse this, this mandatory uh, policy direction. Andrew, there's been a lot of talk in the US about what's been known as the great resignation, um, people leaving the workforce. The labour force shrank by 350,000 people, um, according to this jobs report. So it basically means the, the number of US people actively working or looking for a job. Uh, has become smaller. That's why you've got this uh, reduced participation rate. These, these people don't seem to be coming back, do they? Well, no, I think, I mean, I think a lot of them have just taken that view that they have enough money, you know, if their mortgage is settled, then they can take early retirement and enjoy the wider benefits of life. And I think a lot of people also are, are, are opting for more um, part-time work rather than full-time work. Um, so it's, there's a big lifestyle change that has been... Uh, affected because of COVID and lockdowns, and I think that's going to continue. Um, Shark, let's turn our attention to China, because we've had some data out of there as well on Friday. China's inflation rates climbed to 2.5% in June from 2.1% in May. That was above economists' forecasts of 2.4%. That's the highest reading since July 2020. Food prices rose by 2.9% from 2.3% in May. That's the most in 21 months. Uh, and on, um, on uh, China's producer price inflation, though, eased to a 15-month low of 6.1% year-on-year in June from 6.4% in the prior month. Um, is inflation under control in China, do you think? I think the, at least now the inflation in China is still at a this manageable level. Uh, so if you look at uh, this uh, PPI, I think that reflects uh, the domestic demand is still weak. Right, so that's why I expect uh, uh, on these uh, items of the non-food, like uh, the service one, so they shouldn't be shooting up in future. Even uh, they start to reopen the economy, but on the uh, food side, I think uh, they're always up and down. People said this is a, a poke price cycle in China. So now it seems that this uh, poke price is on the rise, but. Uh, over medium to long term, I think this kind of uh, inflation uh, pressure is still under control. Of course, it depends on the commodity price, how they are involved in future, uh, many things, uh, uh, how, to what extent the China can uh, rebound this economy quickly. Uh, but still, I believe that it's uh, uh, very uh, likely that the China, they can, they can uh, maintain this uh, uh, inflation uh, within a comfortable zone, they said, they, below the 3%. They do seem to be concerned, don't they, about rising food prices and particularly pork prices because we had Beijing saying last week really sending out a warning um, about hog prices that they expected um, you know, enough supply and they were going to intervene in the markets if necessary. Yes, exactly. As I said, this uh, pork price is a very important uh, driving factor for the uh, recent uh, the inflation up. So that's why they were concerned of this one. But as I said, the overall, I think, is still under control. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, how is it that China is managing to keep inflation compared to other 
places globally at a, at a relatively tame rate of two and a half percent. I know it's uh, you know a bit above their targets, but nevertheless, they seem to be doing a better job than the the US and Europe is. How how come? Well, I think a lot of it is due to the lockdowns. Obviously, you know, if uh, if people are locked down, then the ability to spend and the de- desire to spend, especially, is severely curtailed. And I think the other thing in China is the fact that uh, genuinely, that you know, it, with them spending is almost like a binary effect. You know, if they're feeling confident and, and rich, they'll go out and spend money, uh, and if they're not, then they curtail their spending very, very quickly. So, unlike other countries where people tend to sort of moderate. Uh, as times turn bad. In China, it's much more that tap is either on or off. So that gives them a, a good benefit there. But I do think that this, as, as we're saying there, the pork price is, is very important. And, and part of that is, is obviously due to the Ukrainian war uh, and the fact that they used to get a lot of the corn to feed the pig herds from Ukraine, and that's not coming through. That's causing a problem. And you've also got uh, swine flu in, in Germany, which, again, historically would have been a, you know, having a big impact on, on the global price of uh, of uh, pork going forward. So that, I think, is a big concern for the Chinese and because it's, a, it's a very much a stable part of most people's diets. You mentioned the lockdown has obviously curbed consumption. Do you think that now those lockdowns are easing, certainly in some places anyway, and maybe once they're fully lifted, uh, we're going to see a surge in inflation on the mainland? Is that a possibility? I think that's certainly a possibility. And I th- but I think you know, the fact that you know, we're learning today about more outbreaks uh, in China and, and further you know, curtailing events and shutdowns taking place and, until they you know, get the, the vaccination levels up and a, a change of policy of, of a living with COVID rather than trying to, to, um, to eradicate it from the whole system, uh, that's going to you know, certainly keep inflation in check because they're going to have to continue these lockdowns. Um, Shark, this is a big week, isn't it, for China economic data? We've got trade data on Wednesday, uh, which will tell us how well uh, China's export markets are holding up, if they are. And then on Friday, we have GDP data for the second quarter, retail sales, industrial production, a whole range of uh, things that are really going to tell us um, how the second quarter is looking. What should we be looking out for and what are you expecting? Yeah, I think uh, now this week we are going to have a lot of the data f- about China. Then we, we will see how this uh, uh, economic performed in the second uh, uh, quarter. Uh, regarding this GDP, I think that most of the people are focused on this one. Uh, so far, I noticed uh, some people, they believe uh, in the second quarter, China, they will register negative uh, uh, GDP growth. I think uh, if they really announce a very pessimistic uh, uh, GDP outer, I, that will be market moving. But personally, I don't think they are going to announce uh, negative gr- uh, growth uh, because uh, in June, we, we do see this kind of the recovery is uh, underway. Uh, also, uh, I'm afraid maybe the uh, Chinese authority, they will do some window dressing, okay, when they mm. announce this one. They don't want to cause uh, uh, this kind of uh, confidence problem uh, in Chinese economy. So our forecast is uh, in the uh, Second quarter, China will report a growth uh, uh, between one to two percent. Uh, I think uh, it's not that good, but uh, that will soothe market. Yeah, Andrew, do you think if we see some bad data, is that just going to um, encourage Beijing to bring out the big stimulus guns for for this quarter? Well, I think the other data we're looking forward to is seeing the loans data, and that will really give us an indication um, of, of how you know, how businesses are are reacting. But I think the scope for um, 
you know, large stimulus in China is, is, is severely restricted. I mean, you know, historically they will do infrastructure spending. But at the end of the day, there are only so many bridges and so many roads that you can build. Mm. Uh, and, and there's still the lack of confidence in the property sector, uh, which is a key driver for most of the, you know, the regional economies within China. Um, so I think they've, they've got some big, uh, some big hurdles to... Uh, to actually try and uh, leap over in the next six, nine months. And they're talking about bringing forward uh, local government's uh, spending so that they can actually boost infrastructure um, in, in this quarter. Is that, is that the right thing to do? Well, I, it, it, uh, the, the key point about that is you're just bringing stuff forward. It's not new spending then. Mm. It's already existing spending. You're just accelerating the time period. Um, so it, it provides a short-term measure, certainly, uh, but longer-term growth and real growth in China, uh, I think they're going to struggle with. Um, Shark, we have um, trade data on Wednesday as well. Obviously, China's exports were a big driver of the economy's recovery uh, the first time around, back in 2020, out of the pandemic. What do you think about this time around? Because now uh, China's export markets, particularly in the US and Europe, look weak, don't they? Yes, exactly. I think that because other emerging markets, they are normalized. So uh, that's why the Chinese export are not, are not uh, uh, that, uh, that good as before. So in terms of the, its contribution to GDP, we do expect that this year the Chinese net export will uh, become a small a smaller contributor to the total GDP. Uh, but generally, we still believe that they can maintain a growth rate like 5 to 8% for, for, for the year. Yeah. Andrew, finally from you, we've got the Biden administration maybe close to announcing a rollback of some tariffs on Chinese consumer goods. Do you think that will give uh, a, a boost to trade and maybe a boost to China economies? And will it have the effect of lowering inflation in the U.S.? Well, I think it's, it will certainly be a good move and it will certainly be positive for the, uh, the U.S. economy. Uh, and, and certainly you know, the people buying stuff won't have to pay so much. But I'm not sure that we're going to get a huge boost in, uh, in demand coming as a result of it, really. Um, a lot of these costs have been you know, effectively accepted and haven't really deferred spending. Um, I think the bigger problem is, is you know, the base demand out of both America and within China. And uh, that's more difficult to, uh, to take a view on. Okay, well, thank you both very much. Have a great week. You heard there, Lashar, Asia Chief Economist at BBVA, and Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Times 8.25. On the phone is Brock Silvers, Chief Investment Officer at Kyan Capital. Morning, Brock. Peter, good morning. Happy Monday. Thank you very much. Happy Monday to you too. It's a big week, isn't it, for Chinese economic data. Uh, we were saying earlier, trade data on Wednesday, then we get the GDP data on Friday, a whole range of other economic indicators. What do you think it's going to tell us about the state of the Chinese economy? Well, look, I, along with, I think, many analysts, think that GDP growth has probably turned negative in the second quarter. Um, Household consumption and property are the headliners, but lots of other indicators also seem to agree. You know, luxury sales, travel data, truck transport, auto sales, and on and on, all down sharply. But Mm. I can't see the government reporting a negative number. Um, You know, Bloomberg uh, did a survey last week that expected a 1.5% consensus. But I I think any, uh, any positive number that gets reported is probably nonsense in my view. I would heavily discount it. 
So you think that, are you saying the, the data, I mean, there's lots of ways of, of, of adjusting GDP data, isn't it? Using the deflator and, and so on. You think that's going to happen? Uh, yes, I think that anything that can be done to massage the data probably will be, uh, and I would be shocked if there was actually a, a negative number reported. So what does this mean for stimulus then? Because people are saying that if if the economy does go into contraction, uh, that raises uh, the likelihood that we're going to see a bigger economic stimulus package. But of course, if it is actually weak, but it's not reported as being so, um, that, that makes it more difficult, doesn't it? It certainly does. So what does Beijing do if it's really confronted with a shrinking economy? You know, it, it doesn't seem to want to commit too much of its own firepower. And the answer seems to be to, to have to have started allowing local government financing vehicles to issue massive new debt. Mm. Now, there's a couple of things worth noting here. The LGFVs are being allowed to issue going into next year's allocation. What that says is Beijing is really betting big on solving the problem now. If the problem continues to next year, that's one less uh, arrow in the quiver and things could be worse. Now, the second point is, is this. Um, the debt is being issued mostly to fund infrastructure. So massively indebted local entities, just as the real estate implosion decimates local revenues, are issuing more debt to, front, to fund infrastructure projects <laughs> with notoriously low marginal utility. Who can see that ending well? So you're saying this is really not a very good use of, um, of government funds and, and their ammunition? You know, it, it seems like desperation where Beijing doesn't want to directly tackle the problem, but that leaves it with options that are uh, unappealing. Mm. A lot of this debt looks highly distressed before it's even issued. I mean, we're seeing more and more um, property firms on the mainland defaulting now um, on payments. Do you think the property sector is going to remain a big drag on the economy in this second half of the year? Yeah, it certainly will. Look, the property sector looks uh, generally uh, generally bankrupt at this point. It's going to need a, a an overall plan from Beijing. Beijing has not yet shown a willingness to do that, and I think that this year we have so much debt that's coming due, and most of the developers seem to have gotten uh, have gotten the memo that it's okay to default and just sort of hoard whatever cash you have now, waiting for that plan to drop. Okay, let me get your thoughts on a couple of other things that are going on as well. First, U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods. President Joe Biden has been saying over the weekend that he hasn't decided yet whether to roll back any of the $300 billion of tariffs, but it seems that we may see something. Is this going to be enough to help revive trade, and, and will it do anything to, to help China's economy? Well, I, I do expect some subset of the tariffs to be waived, but I don't think it will have a, a tremendous impact either on U.S.-China trade or on inflation in the U.S. But, you know, I'm just I, – I, I can't understand the rationale here. So the Biden administration can't make up its mind because I've yet to hear a convincing argument. You know, mm. were the tariffs a mistake? No one's made the argument. Have they achieved some final goal? That seems even more dubious. Will they decrease U.S. inflation? I'm not convinced that they contributed to it. Mm. And why only some? Were some more worthy or effective than others? I just I don't see any any strategy here. I just think the U.S. is sort of fumbling through this relationship. What would it, what would tariff uh, removal mean for Hong Kong firms? 
We have many factory owners here that have now sort of relocated some of their operations away from mainland China, including to Southeast Asia because of these trade disputes. What sort of impact will it have on our um, exporters here? Well, it, won't, it certainly won't be negative, but I also don't think it will be a huge positive. As you say, I think supply chains in the U.S. and globally have already been adapting to these tariffs um, in a relatively quick and effective way. And I just don't think a, a, a removal of a small su- of a targeted subset is really going to move the needle that much. Okay, Brock, thank you very much indeed. It's always great to talk to you. That's Brock Silvers, who's Chief Investment Officer at Kyan Capital. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And let's take another look at the markets for this morning in Australia. Uh, the SX200 bucking the trend elsewhere in Asia, down about a quarter of a percent. Uh, but the Nikkei 225 is very firm this morning. It's up 1.6% right now. Uh, the Cosby is up about a third of a percent. Looks like it's going to be close to um, a flat opening for the Hang Seng later on this morning when trading gets going in just under an hour's time. Thank you very much for listening. Please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. After the news, we have back chat with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse. Just before that, let me give you an update on the weather forecast. Very hot during the day. Maximum temperature of about 34 degrees. The very hot weather warning is in force. And the outlook is for it to be mainly fine and very hot in the next couple of days. It's going to be slightly cloudier with a few showers in the latter part of this week. Uh, the temperature right now is 29 degrees, 80% relative humidity. Just gone 8.31. Here's Ben Che with the half-hour news. Japan's governing coalition of the Liberal Democrats and Kuomintang appear to be on track to increase the majority in the upper house of parliament after yesterday's election. If exit polls are confirmed, the result will strengthen Prime Minister Fumio Kishida's aim to reform Japan's pacifist post-war constitution. This was the ambition of his predecessor Shinzo Abe, who was assassinated on Friday. The BBC's Rupert Wingfield-Hayes reports. Mr Abe's old party, the LDP, is on its way to a widely predicted victory. It is possible that parties which favour changing Japan's post-war constitution may have gained two-thirds of the seats in the upper house of parliament. If so, that could open the way for the LDP to make a new attempt to get rid of the famous Article 9, which declares this country a pacifist nation. The Speaker of the Sri Lankan Parliament says President Gotabaya Rajapaksa fled the island following the storming of the presidential palace. But Mahinda Yapa Abiwardena, a member of the president's governing party, insisted that Mr Rajapaksa would return by Wednesday when he is promised to resign. Reports suggest he's still in Sri Lankan territorial waters. The BBC's Andarasan Atharajan has more. Gotabaya Rajapaksha has the strong backing of the military so far. So for him to go outside the country will not be a very suitable idea because during the civil war, which ended in 2009, he was the defense minister. Defense secretary is facing allegations of human rights violations and killings of several civilians and Tamil Tiger rebel leaders. He denies the charges, so he can be prosecuted or many other in places people would be wanting to take him to court for those allegations. So for him, at the moment, Sri Lanka is the best place to stay. And in tennis, Novak Djokovic has won his fourth consecutive Wimbledon title. The Serb superstar beat Australia's Nick Kyrgios in four sets, winning the fourth on a tiebreak. It's Djokovic's 21st Grand Slam title, but he said Wimbledon is still special.
my first image of tennis was grass and Wimbledon and I always dreamed of coming here just playing in this court and then of course uh, realizing the childhood dream and winning this trophy and uh, you know every single time it's, it gets more and more meaningful and special and so I'm, I'm very blessed and very thankful to, to be standing here with, it, with the trophy. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Jim Gould and your co-host today is Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. This morning until nine o'clock, we'll be talking about uh, pandemic travel restrictions uh, after the new administration suspended the policy of temporarily banning flights to Hong Kong if airlines were found to be carrying a certain number of COVID-positive passengers. Bans already 